Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Eighteen fifty one Moby Dick gets published. There's one mention of Arkansas. Arkansas was portrayed as crazy, violent, and stupid all mm. in one line. I've waited my whole life for this opportunity. Perhaps this was even the primary reason for my birth in what some have called the creation state, the bear state, my beloved Arkansas. If this is the last Bear Grease podcast I ever make, my soul will be satiated by the sweet nectar of having had the last word, by being given a chance to explain things that the world in its frivolous pursuit of progress has yet to slow down enough to understand. I'm quite certain this is the greatest place on planet Earth, but on this episode, we're going to talk about the Arkansas image. Some say it was the most picked on state in America in the 20th century, but there are a lot of other places kind of like us. So why? We've been branded as a haven for barefoot, uneducated, feuding, and poverty-stricken folks gifted with an inferiority complex and defensiveness as part of our cultural inheritance. It's time we set the record straight and separate fact from fiction. We'll learn those characterizations weren't far from the truth, but they were oversimplified and myopically viewed by a nation who deeply wanted us to be that. We'll explore the power of regional identity and why Arkansas is still shaking its frontier image. We'll talk with Dr. Brooks Blevins, Dr. Jeannie Wayne, and Dr. Bob Cochran to understand the roots of this image, its impacts, both good and bad, and we'll have some surprise guests that will certainly shock you. We'll talk with the curator of one of the finest museums of American art in the country. We'll hear from the founder of Walmart. Yeah, I said we'll hear from him directly. And 
We'll hear a never-before-released interview with none other than Arkansas's own first son, Bill Clinton. You think I'm kidding, but I'm not. And regardless of if you care anything about Arkansas, you're going to learn something about the complexity of how things came to be as they are and how meaningful it can be to be connected to place. I really doubt, for real, you're going to want to miss this one. But before we start, I want you to take an inventory of the image of Arkansas that you have in your mind. What do you think when you hear about this state? Where did it come from? From the very earliest days, there has been this sort of defensive inferiority complex that is just, it's almost part of your heritage as someone who grows up in Arkansas. You just expect people are going to make fun of you. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. Happened, happened in Arkansas. Where else could it have happened but the creation state, the finishing up country, a state where the soil runs down to the center of the earth and the government gives you title to every inch of it. Then it's air, just breathe them and they'll make you snort like a horse. It's a state without fault, it is. Jim Doggett, the big bear of Arkansas. The Arkansas image has been brewing since the late 1600s and it's still alive today. I'll be braving the river of stereotypes and honest to God truths to see which one makes it to the other side. My friend, Dr. Brooks Blevins, I think, loves Arkansas as much as I do. And that's what qualifies us to speak so frankly and with such keen perception. And he says that the Arkansas image is associated with violence, ignorance, shiftlessness, laziness, with generous doses of racism, moonshining, clannishness, barefootedness, floppy-hattedness, and general cussedness. But in the positive column, Arkansans are known as independent, resourceful, nonconformist, close to nature, unpretentious, generous, and non-materialistic. There are two sides to every story. And if I know one thing, it's this. Things are usually more complex than they seem. So I'd suggest that if you're not from here, you just listen and learn. This place is full of squirrel dogs, Fortune 500 companies, banjo pickers, world-class American art, a president, and some fine mules. By the time we get to the end of this You might be wishing you were barefoot, grinning ear to ear, eating at fancy restaurants and living the high life in Arkansas like me and Brent Reeves. (laughs) On the last episode, we established that prior to the Civil War, the newly formed state of Arkansas was branded to America as the Bear State, 
fueled by a firebrand comedic genre of writing that featured bear hunting called Southwest Humor. It portrayed eccentric Southern characters speaking in dialect and outlandish tales from what Jim Doggett called the creation state, Arkansas. The short story, The Big Bear of Arkansas, was published in New York City and had a virality that pushed everybody and their brother to start writing and even painting about Arkansas bear hunting. And this place was truly a haven for bear hunters. On our Death of a Bear Hunter episode, a man named Erskine was killed in the early 1840s by a bear being bayed by dogs, and Native Americans buried his body in a shallow grave roughly 25 miles from my house. In Independence County, Arkansas, there is a community called Oil Trough where market hunters established a commercial bear-rendering facility that shipped bear oil and hollow logs down the White River to the Mississippi and then to New Orleans to be burned in streetlights and used by those Cajun chefs who preferred bear grease over other oils. It's recorded that 936 bear skins and a considerable amount of bear oil were shipped in 1806 by a single company in the Rivertown, Arkansas Post. A traveling writer once described a bear hunter he saw in Hot Springs, Arkansas in 1834. He said the man was a singular fellow who shunned society, was dressed altogether in skins of animals he killed, and seemed never to have washed He lived in the woods miles from the springs and only visited when he had bear and deer skins to sell. This writer met another hunter near the Caddo River. He said he was a genuine hunter dressed in leather prepared by himself from the skins of animals he'd killed. He was going with his rifle on his shoulder and his dogs some 20 miles off to hunt bears. The man, although between 30 and 40 years old, had never been out of his neighborhood and had no idea of the world beyond his own pursuits. This was the Arkansas that people wanted to talk about, but this backwoods romantic image of bear hunters would be the bright spot compared to what was about to come. Over the next 200 years, Arkansas would become the most maligned and made fun of place in America. But why? There were lots of places with poverty and hunting. Why Arkansas? Dr. Brooks Blevins wrote a book in 2007 titled Arkansas, Arkansas, How Bear Hunters, Hillbillies, and Good Old Boys Defined the State. It's an incredible book. In the title, the first Arkansas is spelled correctly, but the second is spelled with a W at the end, the way the bear hunter Jim Doggett spelled it in 1841. Dr. Blevins makes a case that there are two Arkansas, which I think by the end of this you'll agree with. Let's talk about identity. Here's Dr. Blevins. Uh, You're right. We we don't allow anything to go unlabeled or unbranded, and we have little shorthand ways of characterizing everybody and everything, and uh, states were no different. You know, you think about it, every state went through its frontier stage. And every state had these trappers and hunters and things like that at one stage in their development. But uh, most states eventually get to slough that off and go on about their business and, and modernize. But Arkansas, because of the timing, when it becomes a state right there in kind of the heart of the Southwestern humor era, when people were writing all these stories, because Arkansas in many ways and in many places still was kind of a frontier when it becomes a state, mm. it gets branded at that moment, and that brand really sticks with it for 
for years and years to come. Dr. Blevins makes a strong case that the frontier image of Arkansas never really gets replaced, even though all states had a frontier period. But perhaps we've gotten ahead of ourselves. I think we need to go even further back to understand Arkansas's origins. We're going to have to go way back. This is Dr. Jeannie Wayne of the University of Arkansas. What does the name Arkansas mean? Well, it's it was the name that the group of Illinois Indians who were accompanying the Marquette and Joliet trek down the Mississippi River in the 17th century gave to the Indians that we know of as the Quapaw, but the way they pronounced it was something like Arkansas in the French pronunciation. Oh, really? So they yes. were trying to say Quapaw. They were ca- the Illinois were calling them what they believed their name to be. Okay. The French interpreted it as Arkansas, something like Arkansas. that. Arkansas. And okay. it became, it was ultimately corrupted to Arkansas. What about, I've heard Arkansas means land of the downstream people. That's the downstream people. So Okay. That, so That's the so Quapaw. That was the word that meant land of the people downstream, which was downstream on the Mississippi right. from Illinois. And the Illinois Indians considered them the downstream people okay. because they were part of their their people at some point. Land of the downstream people. Even our naming by the Native Americans is subtly dismissive. Our name is in relationship to an unnamed place upstream. We don't even get our own landmark. Or maybe I'm reading into this and it's just my Arkansas persecution complex talking. It's hard to know because this is the only peephole the Newcombs have had out into the known world since the early 1830s when we arrived in the Washita Mountains of Montgomery County near the community of Bumblebee, Arkansas. And we all know that bumblebee wings are too small for them to fly, but despite the negative press, they've made quite the name for themselves. So has Arkansas. It's believed Arkansas was first inhabited by Paleo-Indians 10 to 12,000 years ago. In 1541, the Spaniard Hernando de Soto was the first European to set foot here. And not surprisingly, the old codger was looking for gold. He didn't find any, but he found substantial agrarian villages of numerous native tribes in Arkansas. He walked into a thriving civilization of what anthropologists call the Mississippian culture. DeSoto declared himself the son of the sun. He wreaked havoc on the tribes for the year he was here before he died of fever. His body was wrapped in a blanket, weighted with sand, and sunk in the Mississippi River. It would be over 140 years before another European dude would come here. In 1682, a French guy named LaSalle found the majority of the villages DeSoto reported completely gone. Nothing but ruins. It's an incredible mystery, but it's believed DeSoto and his 600 men carried smallpox, plague, yellow fever, tuberculosis, the flu, typhus, and measles to the tribes, nearly wiping them out. And tree ring analysis of that time shows an incredibly severe 100-year drought that hit the tribes with a double whammy of crisis. Whatever happened, most of them were gone. LaSalle ends up in a small village of friendly Quapaws and in 1682 makes the first European settlement here called Arkansas Post, just up the Mississippi River on the White River. 
Why is this important to the Arkansas image? We're about to learn. The French presence in Arkansas was very light, and the French hunters became dependent in their own way upon the Quapaw for military alliance, for agricultural goods, um, and they engaged in trade. They engaged in a kind of cultural blending. So, yes, the, the, this— and they intermarried? This, they intermarried. They—again, they, the military alliances— Intermarriage, and, trade. And, this, and there was a descriptive phrase or word used to describe them. Matisse. Matisse. <laughs> yeah, so the French and the Quapaw and their, them intermarrying <laughs> the Matisse. It's unusual for us to imagine this, but there were times early on when the tribes accepted Europeans, helped them, and they even lived together. At Arkansas Post, the cultural lines blurred in the extreme isolation, forming what they called the Matisse. That's a French word, which means mixed. And in this case, a unique blend of the French and Quapaw. Do you remember how I said the big bar of Arkansas, Jim Doggett's philosophical doctrine sounded non-European to me? Well, this is probably why. Some of the European backwoods cultures had 150 years of deep Native American influence. In the 1700s, however, this would backfire on the image of Arkansas as Native Americans began to get a worse and worse rap in the colonies. A Frenchman named Francois wrote of the people at Arkansas Post, quote, They pass their time playing games, dancing, drinking, or doing nothing similar in this as other things to the savage peoples with whom they pass the greater part of their lives. A guy in Louisiana wrote about these people in Arkansas Post, and he said these men consist of scum of all kinds of nationals who have become stuck here through their fondness of idleness and independence. Hardly do they know they are Christians. They excel in all vices, and their kind of life is a real scandal. End of quote. And not to belabor the point, but Louisianan Morris Arnold accused the hunters of Arkansas of this time of being murderers, rapists, and fugitives from justice, and as lazy, shiftless, given to excess drinking and libertinage, and irredeemably lawless and amoral. Dad gum, that stings a little, but it might have been true. This was the beginning of the Arkansas image all the way back in the 16 and early 1700s. And things don't get better for Arkansas. Here's Dr. Blevins. You know, first impressions are very powerful. That first impression can stick with you for a long, long time. And in many ways, that's what happens to Arkansas. Its first impression on the national scene is of this kind of backwoods, bear hunting place that's semi-civilized probably a little dangerous and maybe, you know, not the funnest place to visit. And when it gets branded with that, what happens is for the rest of the 19th century and into the 20th century, there's just kind of this continual piling on uh, of imagery. The imagery just started piling on. And to give a very short version of European immigration into Arkansas, For 100 years after the establishment of the Arkansas Post in 1683, there was very little happening here until the late 1700s when the number of market hunters increased, and they were here in good number, through the time when Arkansas achieved territorial status in 1819. That's when the numbers of people started to increase. 
Just remember all that. It's important. Trust me. This is a lot. But people in Arkansas have to carry a lot of stuff, okay? And this is really important. Arkansas had a unique geography that created isolation. The Indian Territory bordering Arkansas to the west created a border, the Mississippi River to the east, the giant swamp of the East Arkansas Delta, and the challenges of the mountain regions of Arkansas created this unique geographic isolation they called the Mill Pond Effect. Arkansas was on the way to nowhere, and typically the people who settled here were impoverished, indebted, running from something. Pretty wild. The opinions of people can be influential, especially when they have the powerful pen of identity scripting in their hand. A dude from Albany, New York, named Henry Rose Schoolcraft, was one such writer. He was a young greenhorn geologist that came to the Ozarks of Arkansas in 1818 to look at the possibility of mining. Nobody remembers or cares about the minerals he found here because he didn't find much, but my word, did he ever brand the state? He was kind of a punk. Here's Dr. Blevins on Schoolcraft. He wasn't the first explorer from outside of Arkansas to come through and write about the place and, and publish it and for people to read about, but his was probably the most notable. He comes through in 1818 and 1819, so well before yeah, well before Arkansas statehood. becomes a state. Very sparsely settled. He spends uh, almost all of his time in the Ozarks in the, the northern third of the state, and uh, Schoolcraft, is a, he's a New Yorker, and mm-hmm. he's, he's college-educated. He's sort of a, a budding geologist, mm. but he, you know, he writes this report of his travels through the Ozarks, and it's published just a couple years after he does this trip. He writes some very, very negative things about the people that he came into contact with. Not all of the people, but for the most part, he's very, very negative. Well, probably most uh, famously, Schoolcraft visits a family by the name of Wells, in northern Arkansas, probably, you know, somewhere in, in the like mountain home vicinity. And he has nothing whatsoever good to say about the Wells family. I mean, he, he really, uh, he really hammers them pretty good. He uh, calls the children abundantly greasy and dirty. They're all dressed in buckskin. Mm. And he says of the mother of the family and the children, they could, quote, only talk of bears, hunting and the like. The rude pursuits and the coarse enjoyments of the hunter state were all they knew. And for him, you know, I mean, there were no books in the house. There was there was nothing that reminded anybody of civilization there. Mm. And so he was completely repulsed by the food, by what they were wearing, by what their house looked like, by the fact that all they could talk about was hunting. I mean, that's what their life <laughs> revolved around. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there were all kinds of hides stretched out on the, on the house. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was just, just their, their entire lives were repulsive to him. I wish Schoolcraft would have just stayed in his lane and wrote about rocks and mountain orogeny. Keeping the cultural anthropology to the people who know a thing or two about human life. You dirty sap sucker. He called Arkansans a wild, semi-civilized race of backwoodsmen. As judgy as Schoolcraft was, he made some interesting observations. He wrote, quote, 
The hunter, although habitually lazy and holding in contempt the pursuits of agriculture, so far at least as is not necessary to his own subsistence, is nevertheless a slave to his dog, the only object around him to which he appears really devoted. To him all days are equally unhallowed, and the first and the last day of the week find him alike sunk in unconcerned sloth and stupid ignorance. That was a little harsh, bro. And in deep human history, hunter-gatherers chose not to partake in large-scale agriculture because they hunted for food and they were saving their energy for the hunt. Secondly, you got the dog thing partially right. But it's not the only thing we're devoted to, but goodness, a good hunting dog is hard to beat. Another thing Schoolcraft noted as unusual was the violence, which would become a big part of the Arkansas image. He wrote, quote, Without moral restraint, brought up in the uncontrolled indulgence of every passion and without regard of religion, the state of society among the rising generation in this region is truly deplorable. In their childish disputes, boys frequently stab each other with knives, two instances of which have occurred since our residence here. No correction was administered in either case, and the act being rather looked upon is a promising trait of character. End of quote. You guys know that my annoyance with schoolcraft is partly tongue-in-cheek. It sounds like he witnessed some bad characters, but he wasn't the only one who saw it. The Englishman Thomas Nuttall spent some time in the Ozarks before statehood, and he said, quote, The population in this territory is but too favorable to the spread of ignorance and barbarism. The means of education are, at present, nearly proscribed, and the rising generation are growing up in mental darkness and have almost forgot that they appertain to the civilized world. End of quote. What's interesting is that not everybody was as hard on Arkansas as these two city-slickin' punk elites. Our good buddy Frederick Gerstocker spent six years in America and much of it in the creation state. His perception of Arkansas was vastly different than schoolcraft. He said, quote, I have traversed the state in all directions and met with as honest and upright people as are to be found in any part of the Union. End of quote. He was here about 20 years after Schoolcraft, so maybe some people of higher character showed up, or Schoolcraft was looking for fault. When leaving the state, Gerstocker said, quote, Of all I had seen in America, Arkansas was the one which pleased me the most. I may perhaps never see it again, but I shall never forget the happy days I passed there. There were many a true heartbeats under a coarse frock or a leather hunting shirt. Perhaps most famously, Washington Irving, America's first well-known author, passed through Arkansas, and he wrote, quote, The inhabitants have none of the eagerness for gain, the rage for improvement, which keep our people continually on the move. He said they, quote, resided in a contented state of poverty, worked little, they danced a great deal, and a fiddle was the joy of their heart, end of quote. As he left Arkansas, he wrote, quote, as we swept away from the shore, I cast a wistful eye upon the moss-grown roofs and the ancient elms in the village and prayed that the inhabitants might long retain their happy ignorance, their absence of all enterprise and improvement, their respect of the fiddle, and their contempt for the almighty dollar. End of quote. 
Schoolcraft, Nuttall, and Irving were all here during Arkansas's territorial period from 1819 to 1836. It's easy to see the direction this is all going, but it's just getting started. Remember that inventory that you took about Arkansas? You might be seeing the breadcrumbs of your modern ideas about us leading you way back. And I know that there's been a lot of information to process here, but in Arkansas, our intellects have to work double hard to overcome our ignorance. So we're used to fast thinking, sage calculations, and doing this intellectual calculus on the fly. If you need to pause and rewind, feel free to. As a parent, nothing keeps me up at night more than the idea of something happening to my children. But if something happens to me and I'm not around to protect them, that's a true nightmare. Having term life insurance for myself is crucial because I can rest easier knowing my children and loved ones can have some financial support even if I'm not there. That's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. Having life insurance just gives me that extra confidence throughout the day knowing that my family will be financially cared for if something bad happened to me. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You can be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's meetfabric.com slash bear. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash bear. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a 
polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. So back to our story, how Arkansas became the most belittled state in America. In 1836, we became a state, but we weren't ready. We only had 52,000 people, no infrastructure, not much agriculture, but something was a-brewing. Here's Dr. Blevins. And the only reason it becomes a state so quickly is because politicians in those days, compromisers, tried to maintain peace in the country by maintaining a balance between slave states and free states in the U.S. Senate. And Michigan was ready to, to join the Union as a free state. And Arkansas was the closest thing to a slave state that might be ready for statehood mm. in 1836. So they kind of crammed them together and push them through. And so Arkansas prematurely really becomes a state. Arkansas prematurely becomes a state. This is very important for our future, and this was an interesting place socially. Arkansas was divided on being a slave state, but politics and money won out. The short version of a very complex story is that the Delta had the farms, the money, the slaves, and the political power. And the Highlands people of the Ozarks and Washita's were the poverty-stricken hillbillies that would become synonymous with the national image of Arkansas. And we'll get into it, but the word hillbilly didn't show up until the 20th century. It's a relatively new word created as a derogatory slur by people not from here. And I'm about out of breath from all this talking. It ain't easy being from Arkansas and having to know all this stuff. Here's Dr. Wayne telling us yet another reason we got the shaft for coming in as a state prematurely. And it showcases what Americans hate. Poverty and financial woes. What are you going to tax if they wanted to tax? What kind of economy is there? Mm -hmm. Farming economy, the wealthiest people are those planters growing up in southeast Arkansas. Boy, those guys could control the political levers well enough to make sure there were no taxes on them. So where's the commerce? Where's, how, how are you going to support yourself? Who's going to write the check? Who's going to pay the rent? So we get in deep trouble right away. Both banks go bankrupt. Arkansas mm. is in debt at the beginning. Within a couple of years after it's, it's mm. a state, it's, it's an impossible debt. And that is really, that's not cleared up until the 1890s, 1898, I believe. Mm. This news was going out to America, and Arkansas was just kind of this, like, backwater place. That yes, where, where with just, corrupt politicians and people and bad debt. You aren't gonna, how are you going to get anybody to invest in Arkansas at this point in time, in the 1840s and 1850s? We came into statehood with nothing to tax. We started banks, and the banks immediately failed. And what do you think that did for the people of Arkansas? It was generations before some people ever put money back in the bank, which added to the slow progress of this place. In Dr. Blevins' book, Arkansas, Arkansas, which I now require as mandatory reading to be my friend, he wrote, quote, Arkansas has provided an antithesis to a variety of American illusions. The idea of American exceptionalism, the blind faith of progress, 
America's starring role in some cosmic providential plan. In this rendering of the Arkansas image, the Arkansaw becomes a nonconformist who consciously or unconsciously rejects the tenets of an American narrative of the Puritan through progressive continuum, like C. Van Woodward's post-Civil War Southerners who learned to live for long decades in quiet un-American poverty and learned the equally un-American lesson of submission. End of quote. Did Dr. Blevins just say that Arkansas debunked the idea of American exceptionalism? I think he did. But because Dr. Blevins is one of us, it's okay. The Arkansas image carries with it a healthy dose of nonconformity. But maybe that's not all bad. This is one of my favorite quotes. A 20th century writer once said, quote, Died in the wool, Ozarkers are proudly primitive. Their isolation is a religion and clannishness of virtue. They're the most backwards and deliberately unprogressive region in the United States. End of quote. Now, this next one hurts a little. A writer named C.L. Edson wrote, quote, A people willing to foot it a hundred miles through muck to get nowhere founded Arkansas and achieved their aim. Arkansas has its own popular motto, and it's this. I never seen nothing. I don't know nothing. I got nothing. And I don't want nothing. The dirt ball went on to write, Few can read in Arkansas, and those who can don't. Every old southern state has produced a few scholars except Arkansas. No man of first-class intellect was born in Arkansas, lived there, or even passed through the state. End of quote. What a punk! Those are some strong words, Mr. Edson. And me and Brent Reeves will fight any of your living kin right now if they've got the gall to show up down here. I'm just kidding. (laughs) We thrive off this stuff. We're used to it. It's kind of what made us who we are. And we're back to the drawing board and have yet another layer of powerful branding. In the 1840s, the widely popular story of the Arkansas Traveler came out. Here's Dr. Blevins. A little bit later, you've got the birth of the Arkansas Traveler. Uh, it's uh, The Arkansas Traveler becomes a, a popular play in the 19th century where you have this sort of sophisticated, urbane traveler who, go, who ventures into somewhere in the backcountry, you know, depending on who's telling the story. Anyway, they venture into the backcountry and they encounter this squatter at a log cabin and he's sitting there sawing away on a fiddle trying to play a song and he can't remember the rest of the song. And then there's this humorous back and forth between the traveler and the squatter, uh, such, you know, gems as which way does this road go? And the squat and the squatter says, well, I've been here 20 years and it ain't never went nowhere. And, you know, that uh, why don't you patch up your roof? And uh, the squatter says, well... Uh, when it's raining, it's too wet to patch it up, and when it's dry, it don't need patching. That you know that kind of, <laughs> you know, it's it only the, leaks when it rains. Right. They, these are, I mean, old old comedy bits that go back, you know, how many, who knows how many centuries, but they're kind of plugged into this new, fresh territory 
uh, Arkansas. So, so you get this Arkansas traveler legend that turns into a fiddle tune that right. becomes very popular. It turns into that play. It turns into paintings right. uh, that are that are still you know popular, and you see those are around today. So you got the name of Arkansas's baseball team. The, right, the Little the Rocks Ar- baseball team. The Arkansas Travelers. The University of Arkansas student newspaper, the Arkansas Traveler. Yep. I mean that that sticks uh, in. And I guess Arkansas may still do it. I'm not sure. But, you know, they used to hand out, you know, these Arkansas Traveler Awards to people. Yeah. You know, and, and you kind of, you become an honorary Arkansas Traveler uh, if you do something good for Arkansas or they want to honor you for something. But, you know, that's, again, yeah. age-old comedy stuff right there. But that sticks with the state. And this is before the word hillbilly comes into popular usage, uh, which is only around the turn of the 20th century when mm. when that comes in but so Arkansas is already strongly associated what with what we would consider hillbilly culture come the 20th century it's also around the turn of the 20th century when you start having these cheap joke books that are published and the most famous of all those cheap joke books is on a slow train through Arkansas mm. And it, on the front, you know, you know, you got this kind so there's of a book titled that. Yeah, there's a, there's an old joke on book a slow train on a, through on a slow train through Arkansas. And the thing about it is, if you if you actually get the book and look at it, it's a very very offensive book, but not necessarily to people from Arkansas. Hmm. It's it's racially and ethnically and religiously offensive. But the fact that the guy who wrote it decided to call it on a slow train through Arkansas and have the artwork on the cover depict these kind of hillbilly characters in Arkansas suggests that by the time the book comes out in the early 19, very early 1900s, Arkansas is already shorthand for humorous. Yeah, that was that was branded in, and this yeah. guy was jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, he's taking advantage of who of was an that image. guy? What a dirtball! <laughs> right. <laughs> Once upon a time in Arkansas, an old man sat at his little cabin door, and he fiddled at a tune that he liked to hear. A jolly old tune that he played by ear. It was raining. The Arkansas traveler story has multiple potential sources, but it started off simply as a story that branded us big time. There's a famous painting, a fiddle tune. Arkansas Traveler was the name of a national paper published out of Arkansas with a national distribution of 85,000 in 1887. And in 1938, there was a Hollywood movie that came out called The Arkansas Traveler. It's the name of our only pro baseball team and the student paper at my alma mater of the University of Arkansas, Go Hogs, is The Arkansas Traveler. And then that dadgum joke book. Yeah, Arkansas from you know from those earliest days when it when it gets branded as the the bear state that becomes some version of that some version of the backwoods hillbilly state becomes its brand becomes its what everybody in the country knows about it really for the rest of the century you know it shows up in in Mark Twain's writing you know that there's there are kind of these backwoods crazy characters from Arkansas who shows up in a lot of literature. And it's almost always uh, Arkansas is, it's this backward place that never really modernizes like other places. It never gets beyond its its frontier stage. And that really, you know, continues into the, uh, well into the 20th century. Arkansas maintains its place as kind of the, the butt of a national joke. Were there, were there other states in the South that had that quite like, uh, quite like Arkansas? If you're, if you're from Arkansas, you know, there's the old thank God for Mississippi line, which, <laughs> which I've heard people say 
many, many. That usually comes into play when you're looking at statistical yeah, rankings. Right. Because if anybody's going to be below Arkansas, it's it may be Mississippi. We're fighting yeah. for 50th place. And Didn't they like reference Arkansas as inside of those cartoons? I mean, are there other, do they do that with other states? Yeah. Well, the, the one I think you're thinking of, it's, it's a Warner Brothers cartoon from 1950 called Hillbilly Hair. Mm. And it's Bugs Bunny. Oh, and okay, in, okay. In Hillbilly Hair, I, I know they reference the Ozarks. Okay. But in that cartoon, Bugs Bunny travels to the Ozarks for some reason. You know, he pops up out of the ground and he's in the Ozarks. Vacation in the Ozarks. So quiet, so peaceful, so far from harm and danger. So, huh? And he gets into the middle of this feud between, you know, two feuding families. They're all bearded and barefoot and overalls. And mm. They got, you know, shotguns with muzzles on them that are longer than the people themselves. Hold on there, critter. And just who might you be? I might be Teddy Roosevelt, but I ain't. Hey, you darn fool! What's the idea of tying knots in my rifle barrel? Just call me Freckles. You know, it's a very, very, it's funny and it's stereotypical and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the things you find is that by the, the 20th century, Arkansas and the Ozarks becomes kind of interchangeable in, in a lot of ways in myth-making and imagery for the nation, even though the Ozarks only makes up roughly a quarter of the, the state right. of Arkansas. When it comes to the image of Arkansas, in many ways, it's very much tied up with this kind of Ozarks hillbilly image. Thank God for Mississippi. I actually like Mississippi a lot. That's where Bear Grease Hall of Famer Holt Collier lived. The Ozarks and Washita's, Arkansas's mountainous regions, make up about one-third of our state. But in the 20th century, the national Arkansas image takes a notable turn to depict the poor white highlanders and leaves out African Americans, Delta farmers, and Native Americans still in Arkansas. The trend was completely based on America's appetite for entertainment and intrigue. For some reason, the poor white mountain folk were what they wanted to talk about. Growing up here, I didn't realize we were special until I was older and started traveling. And without a doubt, I am very defensive of Arkansas. Dr. Blevins says that defensiveness is part of our cultural inheritance. Dr. Blevins brought up Mark Twain's work. And here is Dr. Bob Cochran with two major American novels with references to Arkansas. Do you know what they are? Okay, one of them is Mark Twain, which won't surprise you at all. But in Huckleberry Finn, you remember the two fraudulent guys that go around putting on the, the Royal Nunsuch show? Mm. They, they, you know, they're just two bums, but they, yeah. they, they try to take yokels. And there's a place, Arkansas shows up in, in Huckleberry Finn. Mm. So when he's putting up a placard advertising their Hoochie Coochie show, you know, <laughs> and that's what it is. I mean, there's no, they have not the show. They're two guys. They don't have, you know, they, don't have, they couldn't do a burlesque show if they wanted to. But they put up a sign and whatever else it says down at the bottom, they say, Women and children not admitted. Mm. And then the guy turns, the prince turns to the duke, says, there, he says, if that don't get them, that don't bring them in, I don't know Arkansas. And so he's referring to this specific line, you know, that these suckers will think there must be something, mm. you know, risque mm. uh, in the show just by mm. that line, just by the no women and children admitted. So the, here's what I'm really saying. Arkansas's reputation as a state, this would have supported it. And there's one even more famous. 
It's Moby Dick. Mm. 1851, Moby Dick gets published. There's one mention, and one only. In Moby Dick? Yeah, of Arkansas. And what it does is... (laughs) Is, is make us look bad. That's no surprise Man, to you, right? They love doing they that. They love doing they? that. And here's how he did it. Here's how he did it. He, it's in one sentence. He, the phrase itself is, uh, like an Arkansas duelist, is the phrase, where Arkansas comes in. Right. And the person who is described as being like an Arkansas duelist is Captain Ahab, the mm. monomaniac, you know, and it's, he is. They threw us right under the bus. Under the bus, under the whale in this case, <laughs> because he is at that moment lunging with a six inch knife at the whale. This is when the harpoon gets wrapped around him and he's yeah. carried down by the whale to okay. his death. But it's, a, it's made very explicit. He's trying with a six inch blade, I think is the word. Mm. He doesn't use the word knife, to reach the fathom deep heart of the whale. That's that's exactly so it was a, it an was idiotic a, thing to do. A, yeah, dumb thing to <laughs> dumb do. Dumb and violent. Yeah. So Arkansas was portrayed as crazy, violent, and stupid all mm. in one line. <laughs> wow. And an Arkansas duelist and a yeah. duel in that yeah. time would have been common language for a shootout. Right. Like yeah, me and you would, just, yeah. would, would have a conflict right. and we would go have a duel in the street, which there was a legislator killed in the state capital of Arkansas. I mean, that's not terribly unusual. Yeah. Nolan, the guy who wrote the Pete Whetstone thing, mm-hmm. he killed somebody in a duel. He killed Governor Pope's nephew. Mm. Governor John Pope's nephew insulted him they and he challenged duel. him to a duel. They were they were distressingly common duels yeah. in those days. They loved to go to places where police jurisdiction was a little bit in doubt, like islands in a river. You mm. know? Is this in this county or is this in this state? Oh, right? Yeah. And so, you know, police jurisdiction would be a little bit hazy, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that was part of the image of Arkansas, was that these people were having duels at the drop of a hat. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, and, you know, they're all carrying Bowie knives around and... and uh, yeah. In 1837, State Representative Joseph Anthony was killed in a knife fight by the Speaker of the House, John Wilson, at the Arkansas State House. And another pair of legislators went to an island on the Mississippi River for a pistol duel, and one of them died. This was a wild and violent place. We're going to skip ahead in time to some stuff from the 20th century. The heyday of the hillbilly in American media was in the 1930s and 40s. There were movies, plays, songs, jokes, but leading the charge on the national scene was radio. It was huge. And there were two men by the name of Chester Locke and Norris Goth from my hometown of Mena, Arkansas. They had a wildly popular national radio show called Lum and Abner that ran nationally for 23 years from 1931 until 1954. I never seen such a change feller in my life. Order run him out of town. Oh, he'll come to his senses all right, Grandpad. Abner just ain't used to having a lot of money, and it's, well, it sort of went to his head. And he's going to kill somebody with that car of his, hmm? Sets back there in the back seat and keeps punching that chauffeur in the back with his walking cane and making him go faster. In 1933, Lum and Abner were receiving 15,000 fan letters per week from people hoping to connect with these two lovable characters. Their comedy show depicted life in the mountains of Arkansas. They spoke of peculiar neighbors and sticky situations, but overall it portrayed the Arkansas as funny, quirky, but noble. 
1937, Lum and Abner moved to Hollywood and starred in seven movies. These guys were a big part of Arkansas's hillbilly image being exported to the country, but they didn't create it. They just inherited it from the last 250 years. But America couldn't get enough of Arkansas. Moving forward, here's Dr. Blevins on the state's inferiority complex and the Ozark Mountain Hillbilly-themed theme park called Dog Patch USA that operated near Harrison, Arkansas from 1968 until 1990. And no, you can't make this stuff up. You know, when I, when I wrote Arkansas, Arkansas several years ago, uh, by far the, the funnest job I had in writing that book was writing that little chapter on the state's inferiority complex. Because the funniest characters in the book to me were the folks in Arkansas who got so, got their backs up, you know, so much about people making fun of them. And, and I think from the very earliest days, there has been this sort of defensive inferiority complex that is just it's almost part of your heritage, uh, part of my heritage as someone who grows up in Arkansas. You just expect people are, are going to make fun of you. And so many people, and it was almost always people from Little Rock. They were, they were the ones who were most upset about this mm. because what they would do, it wasn't that they were trying to defend everybody in Arkansas. They were trying to defend themselves. And if they had to throw the rest of us under the bus to do it, they would do that. When... <laughs> When they were talking about founding Dog Patch USA theme park in the late 60s, there were, you know, people in Little Rock who were upset about that. You know, their response wasn't, well, you know, we're all of Arkansas is, is modern and, and we don't we're not like these people in, in Dog Patch. And their idea was, you folks in the Ozarks, don't be dragging us into into this stuff. I remember my Aunt Terry, God bless her, taking us to the Dog Patch theme park in the late 1980s. All I can remember is the log ride and all the overalls. Man, it was cool. I think that's where Brent Reeves was born. Here's more from Dr. Blevins. And one of the things I did, this was back in, I think it was back in 2007. I I did these internet searches. Not very scientific, but it's about as scientific as I could get. I Because I remember thinking one day, I, I was had almost finished the first draft of, of my book, Arkansas, Arkansas, which is all about, you know, the image of Arkansas, the hillbilly sort of image of Arkansas. And I remember thinking one day, what if I'm writing this entire book, how the image of Arkansas came to be and what impact it's had on people of Arkansas, and nobody really cares. It's not even an issue anymore in the mm. 21st century. What if it doesn't even matter? And I'm the only one sitting around thinking about this. And so I sat down one day and I started doing these you know, like Google searches where I would do exact phrase searches and I'd do like Arkansas hillbillies in quotation marks. And I would do hillbilly from Arkansas in quotation marks. And then I would plug in the names of other states. And I would do Georgia and I'd do Alabama and I'd do New Jersey or just just whatever. And, and, and I remember being so relieved at the end of that day, because in that I would count like the hits that each of these phrases got, and sure enough, Arkansas was still the hillbilliest state according to the internet <laughs> in 2007. In 2007, and I remember, I remember right, I can remember that moment sitting in my in my office 
and just almost doing a dance because we're still the hillbilly estate. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I mean, even, you know, we're smoking Kentucky and West Virginia in in this competition. And and I even broke it down, like did the math by per capita. And, you know, Arkansas just blew everybody away in terms of its affiliation with the word hillbilly in Mm. 2007. So, I mean, even it survived even into the 21st century. You know, those roots go all the way back to those Bear State images that, that we've talked about. I mean, that that's how strong that connection has been, that, that even Walmart can't remove us from, you know, the number one spot, that even Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, you know, one of the great yeah. art museums of the world now. In case you're wondering why you could feel Dr. Blevins and I grinning ear to ear when he said Arkansas was the most hillbilly state, let me explain something. I'm very proud to be from a small, humble place, and most of us are comfortable in our identity. And I have deliberately chosen to focus on the positives of our culture, because there are bad things too, but I'm proud to be from Arkansas. In 1954, an essay was published in American Mercury magazine written by an Arkansasier by the name of Eugene Newsom. I think he had some good advice for us. He said, quote, I say breed up a race of Razorbacks as the Texans are doing with their Longhorns. Fire the old caplock muzzleloader at the neighbors once a week. Give the inquiring stranger directions to possum trot and goose ankle. Give him a sample of Uncle Rafe's last run of corn squeezins. If Arkansas is ever going to amount to anything, she's got to advertise the very characteristics she's been shushing for a hundred years. What Arkansas needs to do is not look, dress, talk, and think like and be indistinguishable from other states. She needs to uncurl her little finger from the teacup and proclaim her known and recognized honoriness to the wide world. End of quote. The Arkansas image we've described is strong and deep. However, it's partly a product of a voracious American media stereotyping people, exaggerating the truth, and feeding people what sells. We're not all lazy, but I do like to take naps. We wear shoes, most of the time. A lot of us do have coot and squirrel dogs, that's just the truth. But we also have 401ks, health insurance, clean and tidy homes, and like going to fancy restaurants and were appropriately impacted by fine art and literature. Our governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, our first female and youngest governor, just signed in one of the most progressive education reform bills in the country. This is a happening place, brothers. Dr. Blevins just brought up the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. I think we should check it out and see if this place lines up with the Arkansas you may have pictured in your mind at the first of this podcast. I'm at the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas. Tell me who you are. Uh, my name is Mindy Bisaw. I am the curator of American art, so I oversee the early American collection here at Crystal Bridges, but I'm also the director of research and fellowships, and we have a great research program that also attracts scholars from not only across the country, but internationally to come to Crystal Bridges and study art. Let me ask you this. Put this museum into context for me. Pretend like I know nothing and where some of the treasures of American art are at across the country. And, and, and you don't have to be diplomatic, 
but how good is the Crystal Bridges Museum on a national scale for American art? It's in the top tier. And I say that as, of course, someone that works here, but also someone that I have my PhD in American art history. I have been studying American art for a long time. I've worked here for eight years. For an American art museum, some of our comparatives might be the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. Now, they have had a long, 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 long history that we haven't had, but our collection is recognizably competitive with other American art museums. Last year, 700,000 people visited Crystal Bridges. This is an incredible number. But I want to let y'all into a little bit of that highfalutin big city drama when all this incredible art ended up in the Ozarks. Some of those fancy folks on the coast weren't that happy. So the rumor in Arkansas, when Crystal Bridges came into Arkansas 11 years ago, we loved it. We, we loved the hype of it, was that, that, the, that the art community was a little upset that some of this world-class American art ended up in the podunk state of Arkansas. And we loved it because Arkansans love when we're picked on just a little bit, but we show the world that were the real deal. Is it true that some people were like saying that stuff shouldn't be in this place? Of course. I would call them doubters. You know, so again, if you think of the coasts as being elite art world locations, they have long histories. Of course, they have a lot to be proud of. And they would say, Arkansas, where is Arkansas even located? Let me help if you don't know where Arkansas is. We're almost in the center of the country, which we'll learn is incredibly helpful if you're planning to build a global retail empire. The world headquarters of Walmart are in Bentonville, Arkansas. More on that in a second. Mindy and I are standing within arm's reach of a very famous landscape painting showing a spectacular scene of green forested mountains. There are two men standing on a bluffy crag overlooking a pristine valley. Landscape art seems to be all about lighting, and this painting almost glows with realism. But it didn't show up here without some drama. You know, whenever I look at pictures of my kids from the past year or even just a few months ago, I'm so amazed at how fast they're growing up, and then it hits me hard. I'm getting older too. That's why planning for my family's financial security has become a top priority. Making sure we're prepared and having enough life insurance in case something unexpected happens and I'm out of the picture is crucial. And Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to get the protection that's right for your family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents and for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash bear. That's M-E-E-T fabric.com slash bear meetfabric.com slash bear policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions 
Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. Okay, so tell me about this one. So this painting is by Asher B. Durand. It's called Kindred Spirits. This is the painting really that prompted the public announcement of Crystal Bridges. Mm. And I'll tell you why. So the painting had been housed and owned by the New York Public Library forever. Asher B. Durand uh, was an important landscape painter early in our uh, history of American art. And the two figures that are represented, one is Thomas Cole. He's the guy with the hat and the portfolio under his arm. He is widely considered the father of American landscape painting. Mm. And American painting really felt like it came into its own with landscape because what we had was landscape. We didn't have big buildings or... We had landscapes. We didn't have Greek ruins. You know, all the things that would point to history in Europe was not found in the United States. So this is widely recognized as a hugely important painting for American art. So people were upset that it came here. So New York Public Library was deaccessioning some works. Now, it's their fault. It's not our fault. It's not as if we went shopping off of their walls. So it means it was for sale. It was for sale. And it went to a um, silent bid through one of the big auction houses in New York. And that this closed bid 
wasn't so closed, and it very quickly leaked that Alice Walton had purchased the painting. Mm-hmm. And everyone was up in arms, especially in New York. Can you tell us how much it cost? Uh, no, I can't, because okay. everything here is priceless. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> and irreplaceable, if I will. So, closed bid, Alice buys the painting. People are up in arms because they think it's going into a private collection in the, quote, middle of nowhere in mm-hmm. Arkansas, never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Now, Alice was just making her museum, building the collection, and as she would say it, she didn't think anyone cared what she was doing just down in Arkansas, buying some art, mm-hmm. making a building. Yeah, just normal stuff for us. Just normal stuff. You know, it wasn't very public. And uh, when everything just exploded, it was like, okay, it's time. So she used the uh, controversy around the acquisition of this painting to announce her intentions okay, for Crystal Bridges. This kind of sounds familiar. The humble billionaires of Arkansas just minding their own business and people starting to get cranky about it. It's not our fault if we have good bear and duck hunting spots and have some of the richest people in the world. Yeah, you just heard the name Alice Walton. This is the daughter of the founder of Walmart, Sam Walton, the true Arkansas hero. As we walk away from the Kindred Spirits painting, we're heading to the painting I really came to see. It's spectacular. Are there any pictures here of, oh, there's, there, that's what I'm after right there. I just saw it. So I have a copy of this painting hanging in my living room. A poster, like a color? One I bought from you guys. Yeah, years ago, I ordered this and had it professionally framed, a little smaller than this. But uh, it, tell me the, what this is and who, who did it. Sure. So this is Arthur Fitzwilliam Tate. Uh, It's called a tight fix. So it's bear hunting in early winter. It's a large painting framed in a gold frame. We have a hunter in buckskin, really in a compromised sort of seated position, leaning back on his arm with a big black bear, claws out, ready to pounce on the hunter. This is an incredible painting called A Hunter's Life. A tight fix. It's huge. The lighting's spectacular, and it shows a buckskin-clad hunter with a Bowie knife drawn in a hand to claw brawl with Ursus Americanus. There's blood in the snow, and in the background, his hunting partner is taking aim at the bear, hoping to save his buddy's life. This was painted in 1856, and the scene is strikingly similar to the one Frederick Gerstocker described in his book Wild Sports in the Far West, which was published just two years before in 1854. It's strikingly similar. We did a whole podcast on this story called Death of a Bear Hunter. We already said it before, but bear hunting was a hot pop culture topic in the mid-1800s. Hunting is deep in the American identity. And I'm very proud that this painting is front and center at Crystal Bridges. Good job, Mindy and Miss Alice. I want to jump back to Dr. Blevins. He has an astute observation and wants to introduce us to a unique Arkansan. You know, in, in, in 2011, Crystal Bridges Museum opened up. I think they opened on 11-11-11. That was their big thing, November 11, 2011. They opened... One of the great American art museums, I guess yeah. it's probably the greatest yes. uh, in terms of a, a collection of American art, American-made art today. Yeah. 
And I love the place. I've been there uh, several times. But what you saw was all of a sudden in the national media, there, there started to be this kind of almost a rebranding of Arkansas just because and of the Ozarks, just because of this one thing that happens, you know, this one big, important cultural institution. And it's just a year or two later that I believe his name is Joe Wilson. Yes. Joe Wilson founds the Squirrel Cook-Off. The world champion Squirrel (laughs) Cook-Off in Bentonville, Arkansas. And it's almost as if it's kind of to to even things out. I mean, you know, you get all this kind of progressive-sided <laughs> publicity yeah. because of Crystal Bridges. And it's almost as if, if he realizes, hey, this is not what we're about just yet. I mean, yeah. we're, we're, still, we're still in Arkansas. We're still in the Ozarks. And there are still people who kill and, and eat squirrels. Yeah. And so you get the you get God the squirrel bless cook-off. Joe and, Wilson and, and the world sorta, champion squirrel cook-off. Yeah, it's kind of, it brings, it re- restores kind of an equilibrium in a way. And it, and it reminds people that what Arkansas has been known for all of these generations long before there was a, a Walton family in Bentonville and long before there was a Crystal Bridges. Joe Wilson is in his late 40s. He's got a big curled mustache and he's often wearing a black cowboy hat. Joe is a well-respected man in Bentonville. But the beat of his drummer is slightly different than many of the urbane newcomers to this place. Walmart and the company Tyson Foods, also founded in Northwest Arkansas, which is the largest meat producer in America, have truly brought the world here. It's pretty incredible. I want y'all to meet my friend, Joe Wilson. We're overlooking downtown Bentonville. So interesting enough, the lady right over here in this corner is where the downtown people sit who make the decision. You want me to record this or no? It don't matter. You know, I'm free willing. (laughs) So last week I met her in the crosswalk, and she asked when I was bringing the squirrel cook-off back to downtown Bentonville. She wants to meet on that. So the story of how we got to downtown Bentonville is pretty simple. I was witnessing the change. I seen the change all around us, switching over from pickup trucks to BMWs and Teslas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's a a stereotype of what Northwest Arkansas is, Arkansas in general. And it really dealt with people like me and you, Clay. I think people come here thinking they're going to see me and you uh, or guys that act and look Mm -hmm. like us Mm -hmm. and they're hard to find. You know, it's been something that's slowly being erased. Uh, to find a chicken fried steak in Bentonville is a hard thing to do, but you can <laughs> you can find something pretty dang fancy, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think my kids have a better opportunity of knowing culture, knowing art, um, all of that. They have less of an opportunity to see the stuff that me and you seen as kids, and that was knowing what was going to stick you in the woods, right? Knowing what was going to make you itch, how to cook and clean a squirrel those things are kind of disappearing. So I brought the squirrel cook-off to downtown Bentonville on the square right here to kind of rub it in, you know, and to give people the opportunity to see who we are. And, you know, it wasn't just the redneck guy. We had chefs coming out. We had teachers, doctors, had people travel from all across the world to see us cook squirrel. And so what started off as me kind of rubbing them I think they really enjoyed one Saturday out of the year to give us the opportunity to showcase that traditional Ozark 
lifestyle. This man is a genius. Joe Rogan ought to have Joe Wilson on his podcast, for real. The World Championship Squirrel Cook-Off will be in late September 2023, and I'm planning on being there. The diversity of people this event brings in is astounding. It'll blow your mind. A lot of what's happening in Northwest Arkansas right now revolves around Walmart. And say what you will about them, but the Ozarker Sam Walton simply gave America what it wanted. So don't hate the player, hate the game. And around here, saving money to live better sounds like a reasonable idea. And I will let you in on a little secret. If you want to go to the finest Walmart stores on planet Earth, come to Northwest Arkansas. The closer you get to the home office, the better they get. Here's Joe talking about Mr. Sam. We're inside of the original Walton Five and Dime store on the Bentonville Square. And I told you that we were going to talk to Mr. Sam. Stand by. Yes, so uh, you're inside of Sam's first store, but a lot of people don't know Sam Walton was a hunter. Sam quail hunted, pheasant hunted. The property where Crystal Bridges was was a place that, you know, coon dogs ran through there. His truck that's inside the museum has a dog box in the back. Sam Walton as a hunter, I think that's what he wanted to be known as because all the images you see, I mean, there was tons of images in here of him carrying a rifle through the woods with brush pants on. Uh, The dog food, Old Roy, named after one of his dogs. So Northwest Arkansas has had a long, long history of hunting and Sam Walton's a huge part of it. Sam Walton as a hunter, um, it's a big part. I hope it's part of the museum when we build it back. Mr. Sam used to carry his muddy-footed bird dogs with him on his jet and often had a shotgun in his truck when he went to work. They're currently remodeling the Walmart Museum. It's a pretty neat place. Joe says he wants to take me down the street to meet Mr. Sam. I'm not exactly sure what he means. We walk a block down the street to the temporary location of the Walmart Museum, and he introduces me to a kind lady named Lisa. I'm going to introduce... You to my buddy. This is Clay Newcomb. It's nice to meet you, sir. Yeah, hey, nice to meet you. I'm Clay. Clay's nice got a, a national broadcasted podcast, and I just walked him through the old five and dime. And now he had some questions he was going to ask Mr. Sam here. Can you tell me what this is? This is, it's a hologram with a little bit of IT magic. This is an actor's portrayal of Mr. Sam. And then the wonderful company that created this, this for us, they used facial mapping to put Mr. Sam's face on the hologram. So we're, we're looking at a, it's a, it's a, it looks like he's in like a little room mm-hmm. and he's just right here by us and his face is moving a little bit. It looks mm-hmm. real. Looks like a real man mm-hmm. standing there. This is a state-of-the-art hologram machine. It feels and looks like we're talking to a real man. It's bizarre. Mr. Sam died in 1992, and it's rare to find anybody here that didn't respect Sam Walton. As a kid, I vividly remember my grandfather, Lewin Newcomb from Bumblebee, Arkansas, who was a peer in age and fellow Arkansas bird hunter to Mr. Sam, speak incredibly highly of Sam Walton and Billy Graham. He placed these men at the same level. Lisa has a microphone in her hand, and she's about to ask Mr. Sam a question. Do you think that Mr. Sam knows the name of the nut that comes off of an oak tree? I don't know. I I know he did in real life. 
but what do you think he would call do you know what the name of that nut is that comes off of an oak tree an acorn okay. i couldn't think of I'm, I'm seeing i was seeing where are you it. from i'm from northwest arkansas really born and raised okay okay, okay. <laughs> i think that kind of fits into what you're after tell me what that is <laughs> well you're so there's two versions of the same thing and one would be called an acorn like you said and the other one would be called an acorn do you know the difference i <laughs> see my my mamma would tell you it's an acorn Okay, I'm oh. telling you, so you're code switching on us. <laughs> so, listen, because all this, all this Walton money, you're code switching on us, pulling out of your Arkansas heritage, calling it an acorn. Are you ashamed of the acorn? Lisa. Or absolutely not. I'm very proud of my home. I'm very proud of my heritage. Um, it's just that people look at you like you're crazed if you say things like that, like Caddy Wampus, for instance. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard the expression oh, Caddy Wampus? We dug, we dug right into the interior and we found what we were looking for. See, so does Sam know anything about old Roy still? Yeah. yeah let's ask uh, him yeah, yeah. and we'll see what he says, okay? Mr. Sam, can you tell us about old Roy? Roy was a setter and probably the most overrated bird dog in history. He wasn't much of a hunter at all. He would point rabbits, for example. But he was a great tennis dog. He would go with me to the tennis court and lay there and Whenever the ball went out of the court or over the fence or whatever, he would go chasing after it and bring it back to me. And the associates and the customers got a kick out of visiting with him in the stores. And once we put his name and picture on our private label dog food, it sold tons. One year, Old Roy became the number two dog food in America. And remember, we only sell it in Walmart. That's so good. Lou and Newcomb loved to feed his bird dogs some old Roy dog food, but he wouldn't have tolerated a bird dog pointing rabbits. But that's another story. There is one thing, though, that we have not talked about that's leaving a glaring hole in the modern history of Arkansas. Boy, this is some treacherous waters. Bill Clinton, I don't know a person that uh, probably would get behind Bill Clinton politically. <laughs> right. But he's someone that I I don't find a lot of people wanting to talk bad about in the state of Arkansas. Yeah. He was like our he was like our our one guy that made it to the That's top. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. His people are still pretty defensive of him like right. they probably wouldn't talk real bad. That's might been my experience anyway. Yeah, I think Bill Clinton's a good example of that. I mean, he's certainly the most famous person from market i guess johnny cash would give him a pretty good run for his money but yeah. but uh on the world stage i mean we got bill clinton and uh yeah whatever your politics are there's there's still a part of you that's proud that here's this small yeah. town boy from arkansas who made it to the white house and that's just something that you don't expect us to do i've told y'all before that my dad went to the same high school as bill clinton in hot springs arkansas a town in which market bear hunters used to roam the streets in buckskin. Well, in 1993, shortly after Clinton took office, he made a visit to Hot Springs. And randomly, Juju Newcomb and my little brother Tyler, who was eight years old at the time, were walking downtown, and believe it or not, they ran into the President of the United States, Bill Clinton. My little brother had a talk boy recorder with him. Do you remember those? Anyway, here's what happened. It's short, really short. 
But the world has never heard this unreleased interview of Bill Clinton. Clinton's down there eating. Yum, yum to my tongue. Third grade class and Mina. And this is a neat machine. I've never seen it before. I didn't, I didn't get to say hi, Tyler. Say it again. Hi, Tyler. <laughs> yum, yum to my tongue. Tyler's always had a way with words. When we dug the cassette tape out after 30 years, it was corrupted and about half of the full interview remained. But Tyler asked Bill Clinton to say hi to his third grade class in Mena, Arkansas, and he graciously did. Tyler then boldly asked the President of the United States to repeat saying hi, Tyler. We better listen to that again. Clinton's down there eating. Yum, yum to my tongue. Third grade class in Mina, and this is a neat machine. I've never seen it before. I didn't get to say hi, Tyler. Say it again. Hi, Tyler. (laughs) That's some good stuff. Good job, Tyler. Did you catch that Clinton and Johnny Cash might be neck and neck for the most famous Arkansans? Yep, the man in black was born in Kingsland, Arkansas in 1932, and we're pretty proud of that. I'm still trying to understand why myself, Joe Wilson, and Dr. Blevins, and so many others are interested in staying true to the original Arkansas image, even with its flaws. Here's Dr. Blevins. Well, you know, it it all comes back to that, that old 19th century division between the Enlightenment and Romanticism. And it, and still today, you know, there are people who are going to take Schoolcraft's side and who are not going to want to have any, anything to do with the hillbilly image of Arkansas or the people who still kind of make that relevant in some way as part of the image of Arkansas. And then there are going to be the people who are excited about it and who are glad that, that not everybody is just sort of lining up and running willy-nilly into this progressive future that, that awaits us, that some people are kind of holding back and still doing things by the old ways. Can you, can and, you, not, have a, can you not have both? Yeah, yeah. And I remember years ago in, in class, I think I was working on Arkansas, Arkansas when this discussion came up in one of my classes. But I remember we were talking about the state's hillbilly image. And I remember one of the students saying, well, at least they know who we are. And his point was, if you're going to have an identity, you're going to be known for something. It's better to be the hillbilly state than to be all of these sort of vanilla cookie cutter states that don't really have any image at all. At least they know who we are. I think that's pretty profound. A deep longing of every human is to simply be known. And sometimes we don't get to choose what we're known for. It chooses us. I do not understand the psychological complexities of why humans naturally become so attached to place. I don't fully understand why I love Arkansas so much. I suspect it's deeply biological and has helped us survive. And it probably has something to do with the incredible natural beauty of our mountains, the clear water of our highland streams, and the enchanting rivers and lowlands of our delta. Throw in the hospitable character of our people, many of which have an intangible charm unique to the creation state. And if I'm being honest, I'm quite certain Arkansas must be the best place in America. 
loving place makes us curious. It makes us explore. It makes us protect. It makes us value that place. And it can empower us to live the best life that we can possibly live in that place. But I think the take home for this whole discussion is that you may live in a trailer park in rural America or in an urban ghetto, but you can thrive there. You get to interpret first to yourself and then secondly to the world about the place you live by displaying who you are. Where we're born doesn't fully define us, but we can use it to positively shape us or negatively shape us if we let it. And I hope you love where you're from because it doesn't have to be perfect, but it is where you're from. So I'd suggest make the best of it. In closing, I'd like to thank America for all the jokes and you're welcome for all the laughs at our expense. Because in the end, we're having the last laugh, living the high life in the creation state, the bear state, with all our fancy art, making state-of-the-art holograms of our heroes. We've got our world championship squirrel cook-off, our black bear bonanza, and the Razorbacks have the best coach in college basketball, Eric Musselman. One day, they'll make a bronze statue of him as big as Jerry Clower's Cadillac. And coach... Please don't take some big job at Duke or some school out in California. There's no doubt that we love this place, but we've certainly got a lot of things to improve on. But that's the thing about Arkansas is we never really thought we were perfect. Jim Doggett said we were, and we believed him, but we knew it was kind of an exaggeration. In Arkansas, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We're not too concerned about the hottest trends. And I find Arkansans to be accepting of people with good intentions and a willingness to work to better their lives. In the end, we're just okay being Arkansans. I'd like to close with a song from our own Johnny Cash. I think there's a message here. Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. This poor man's dad named him Sue and then abandoned him. And then one day, he meets up with his dad. He said, son, this world is rough, and if a man's going to make it, he's got to be tough. And I know I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I give you that name and I said goodbye. I knew you'd have to get tough or die. And it's that name that helped to make you strong. Yeah. He said, now you just fought one of a fight. And I know you hate me and you got the right to kill me now. And I wouldn't blame you if you do. But you ought to thank me before I die For the gravel in your guts and the spit in your eye Cause I'm the son of a that named you Sue Yeah, what could I do? I feel like I can hear Arkansas saying You've got the right to be upset for the image I've portrayed of you over the years But you ought to thank me for the gravel in your gut and the spit in your eye (laughs) All I've got to say is Long live the Arkansas image.
I can't thank you guys enough for listening to Bear Grease. We put our heart and soul into this thing, and we appreciate y'all following along. Leave us a review on iTunes and share this podcast with some of your friends this week. And I can't wait to talk about this on The Render with all those Arkansans next week. And y'all can join in, too, in the conversation. Has your state ever been made fun of? This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Around New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves instead of just expanding on what we've already done right. Maybe you finally organized one part of your space and you want to tackle another. Or maybe you're taking your supplements every morning and now you actually want to eat breakfast. In the last year, I've been more diligent about going to the gym on a regimented schedule. And it's made a lot of difference in my life. Therapy helps you find your strengths so that you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Grease today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Grease. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.